Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Right here at Chicky Shea Wings, we teach people to fly. We've got 11 airplanes, nine flight instructors, and about five mechanics. We turn out about 80 new certificates or ratings each year. And we train pilots who now fly at the major airlines. We have, they fly for the Air Force, the FAA, for private jets. They even have a few missionary pilots. Our customers come from all over the United States. Here at Chickasha, we're able to provide lower costs, a more focused training program, and we're able to provide a higher level of customer service. My favorite thing about this business is helping people. Because I see people go from not knowing anything about it to being an airline pilot. Come out here and learn to fly. Have you ever just hit it off with someone from the moment you met and felt like you could just talk for hours? That's how I felt when I met my guest, Nancy Tecumseh Mason. But then I found out she was Choctaw too. And I realized, oh yeah, that totally makes sense now. <laughs> Halito, my Choctaw friend. Shema Chukma. Halito, Machukma, Yakuki. Chisnato. There you go. Ome. I'm so excited about today and having the chance to, to visit more. So not only does your family have an interesting history, but you also have devoted your life to helping our native youth. So for our listeners, I'll just point out a couple of points from Nancy's bio. She obtained a master's of human relations degree from the university of Oklahoma woohoo, and has worked with youth and families since 1993 as a direct care staff, child welfare worker, and as a program development specialist, primarily focusing on working with teenagers as they transition to adulthood. And she's a certified facilitator of youth mental health, first aid, youth thrive, talk saves lives, nurturing parenting making a difference and proud choices. Thank you for all those things you do, Nancy. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So I definitely want our guests to hear more about all of those things in just a bit, but first, although you're Choctaw, you've been an advocate to the Muscogee tribe, correct? How did, how did that come about? Well, I fell in love. Um, and so that happens, you know, I was in college, my husband is a citizen of the Muscogee Nation. Um, and so we actually ended up moving back to his hometown of Okmulgee, um, where the Muscogee tribe um, capital is located. Uh-huh. Um, and he has friends, family from the community, and actually his surrogate mom um, is one of his best friend's mothers. She told me about a position at the tribe right as I was graduating college. And um, that brought us here. And we've actually been in this community for 27 years now. Um, and so I've worked both with the tribe, with the state, with different organizations, but uh, have been back with the Muscogee Creek Nation now since 2012. We have three kids and we actually ended up 
um, enrolling them with the Muskogee Creek Nation. And although I know lineage just passed through me um, mm-hmm. because they were here, um, it really just made sense. They were being exposed to so much more of the Muskogee culture that I could ever have taught them about, you know, the Choctaw culture. Unfortunately, you know, that's not something that I was able to be immersed in a lot when I was growing up. That's something that I've had to really engage in myself as I've gotten older. Um, and so my, my kids are very involved with different activities within the tribe and um, those kind of things. And so that's just kind of the way we decided to go, that they would, you know, have that that citizenship with the Muscogee Nation. I, you know, I talked about just a little bit, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of the traditions being taught to me. Um, we didn't grow up with a language, but that's something that I've been learning over the last couple of years. We're sharing classes. Um, and so that's been kind of fun to be able to talk back and forth about that process for ourselves. And I've enjoyed mm-hmm. that as we've gotten to know each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and our relatives, um, as far as like family, we just, we had a lot of religious beliefs in our family that I think really kept us from learning a lot of the traditions that we probably would have had that not been a part of our family. Mm. Yeah. makes sense. But I love that you really embraced the Muscogee nation and really delved in and gave your children that chance to, to be on that side of the house if they wanted to. And sounds like you guys are all in. Um, something I wanted to share with our listeners is that they may have always heard the words Muskogee and Creek together. So Muskogee Creek, and I'll share the latest news around that. So the Muskogee nation was really a conglomerate of several tribes. There was a geographical distinction of the Muskogee of upper Creek and lower Creek based on their locations. And so the Muskogee Creek name stuck for many years, by the way, listeners, if you hear some noise in the background, it's my golden retriever. She's the love of my life. So I'm not about to make her leave, but she's biting on a bone anyway. (laughs) But in May of 2021, they removed the Creek reference from the name, but they will keep the title Muskogee Creek when dealing with official business since in its constitution, it's listed that way. So Brian on the Hill is the creative manager for the nation. And he was quoted in the Oklahoman paper in May saying, we are not denying our history on the hill said we are declaring our own identity i liked that so the Mm -hmm. muskogee name itself is spelled multiple ways it's always confusing to me so sometimes it's with a k sometimes it's with a c sometimes with a g instead of a k and sometimes with the v instead of a u Um, and that v letter is used often among certain tribes it has a kind of a sound to it so uh, by the way muskogee means people who have herbal medicine because of their great ability to utilize natural remedies. And the Muscogee Nation is headquartered in Okmulgee. So as Nancy said, she lives in Okmulgee today, and there are about 87,000 Muscogee members. And a little about the town of Okmulgee, and then we'll get back to Nancy. It's just south of Tulsa, and the name comes from a Muscogee word that means boiling waters called Okmulgee because it's near some springs. Okay, so Nancy, let's talk a little more about your own story. Where did you grow up? In a little town called Bokoshi is where I spent the first nine years of my life. Um, and that's definitely in Choctaw country, Lafleur County. Yeah, so it's just a small town. We moved when I was nine to a, another town called Lindsay. I absolutely love the small towns in Oklahoma. Growing up there, I could just, if someone wanted to say, hey, let's take a Sunday drive. It was always so great to just, I, to even to this day, my husband and I love to do it. We just drive around. But I like the name Bokoshi. Which I hear means little creek in Choctaw. Have you heard that too? Um, yeah, and something else about it, about something with the train line that went through it, but I cannot even recall that right mm. now. Oh, yeah. interesting. 
Yeah. It's um, always fun to kind of learn about these different towns that different people grew up in. A lot of times, I don't know about y'all, but I'm always asking, where'd you grow up? What's your town name mean? Who, who made that name? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, it's a little town of about 500 people. And then you moved at age nine, correct? Yes. Yeah. To Lindsay. Um, that's within the Chickasaw Nations reservation. Um, I lived there till I graduated high school and then went on to college um, in Ada, which is also still part of Chickasaw's reservation. Oh, true. But then later you started a career in what must have been a very rewarding field. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, like I said, we, we got here and my husband's family and friends were, um, you know, connected with the Muscogee nation and, um, told me about a job opening that was in, in her office. Actually, she, it was the program that she worked in, um, for the child welfare program. And so I was able to interview and got hired and I worked there for several years and I, I love doing child welfare, um, was definitely a place that I have a lot of passion for working with young people in the foster care system, Mm -hmm. something that I still have passion for. And I, like I said, I kind of went to the state for a little while. I worked for just an independent living program um, that served young people who were both in state and tribal custody. Um, But then in 2012, I actually came back to the tribe and worked in one of the programs. But in 2014, they began the youth services program here at the nation. And I was selected to be the director of this program. And so every day I get to work with young people and help them plan for their futures and connect them with opportunities and resources. And that's really kind of something I've been doing my entire life. And so it's um, definitely still a passion for me. I get to just work with all native youth now, um, mainly Muscogee youth, but we do get to to serve some other tribes depending on um, our different grants that we have. And it's just something I really enjoy. I think just because a lot of times our native youth don't have those connections And so that was for me, like I wanted to be a connector uh, or pathway for them to be able to, to have these different opportunities. Oh, for sure. And it really must feel so rewarding to get to do that. I I just feel the passion when you talk to me about these things that you're doing and, but we should definitely talk more about those youth services programs in a bit, because I think our listeners will want to know more and maybe even some ways that they can help. But first, let me hear more about your family. Where did your, your mom and dad meet for instance? Yeah. So my dad was, I I believe in the relocation program and he ended up in Detroit um, with his older brother, Amos, my uncle, and um, they met my mom. And actually the story is, is that my uncle Amos actually liked her first, but my dad swooped her up and married her. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. Your right. dad must've been super handsome. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <As dads go. laughs> Poor Amos. I feel so bad for him. I know. I know. He's always been one of my favorite uncles too. So Aww. yeah, he could have been my dad. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Yes. How funny. Well, my dad's name is Jackson Barnett Tecumseh, but most people knew him as JB. My aunt Elizabeth, actually, who was just several years older, she was actually allowed to name him when he was uh, working and growing up. He was a mechanic and had a couple of different garages in Tulsa that he managed. And then right before I was born, they built uh, a home on our family's land in Bokoshi and without, cause they lived in Tulsa before I was born, they built that home. And so we, we lived there at that home, uh, like I said, until I was nine. And he had a garage in Panama, which was also in LaFleur County another little town. I actually went to visit that place 
probably over the last year, just oh, yeah? kind of drove by and looked at it. Yeah, it was just kind of neat. Like memories of being at his garage was kind of cool. Aww. And I didn't even know it was actually on Tecumseh Street, um, which I did what? not know. And I don't know. Yeah, I know. I don't know if that was the street name when we were growing up, but it's definitely Aww. the street that's there now, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. I wish we could figure out how to find out that history, you know? I know. I bet I could call the city. I'm going to have to do that now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> or there's like, definitely. there's always that lady, you know, that works at the little, it used to be a train depot and, and it's turned into a museum. And then yeah. she knows everybody and everything that's ever happened. I love those people. <laughs> they yes, have the whole town yes, history definitely. in their brain. <laughs> <laughs> Treasures for sure. Yes, oh, totally. Yes. Well, and my, so my Choctaw lineage comes from my dad. Um, so his, his grandpa, uh, I'm sorry, my grandpa's name, his dad was Julius Houston Tecumseh and he was full blood Choctaw. My dad was half. And so obviously that makes me a quarter because of the, just how they've married as they, you know, yeah. gotten older. Okay. Very interesting. I love hearing all about the story about your, your dad too. I was like, no, yeah. I think I want that lady. She's mine. Goodbye, Amos. Now, when you and I first talked, I asked you the question that everyone seems to ask you how, mm-hmm. if at all you're related to Tecumseh, the well-known Shawnee chief. So we'll still talk about him in a moment, but tell me how the Tecumseh name came about in your family. So actually, so we, we are not related, unfortunately, but which is um, shocking my, to me. I know, I know. It's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. just shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my cousins, she's done a lot of research on our family history. And so she's actually been able to track back several generations. And so it shows um, great, great grandparents who were by the names Tecumseh. And then the wife was Hayakatima. I'm not sure if that's how to actually say that name. So they were on the trail coming here. And so they had five children that included my great grandfather, Amos. So not my uncle, but a great grandfather. Okay. And, and you'll, you'll see, as I'm talking, we have a lot of family who are named after each other. So there's Aww. a lot of repeat, repeated names. Yeah. Yeah. Which is right. a tradition that I've continued. Yeah. On the information that she has, there was a Tecumseh who's listed as a claimant um, under the 1830 Treaty of Dancing Rabbit. Um, so it's assumed that that Tecumseh listed under that treaty is my great, great grandfather Tecumseh. Um, so this would make me a fifth generation from removal. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of folks don't even know who their relatives were that came over on the Trail of Tears. Um, yeah. Most people know what the Trail of Tears is, but just in case not, I actually met someone the other day that does not, did not know what it was. So, you know, mm-hmm. the government was moving all of these tribes into Indian territory, which is now called Oklahoma in a sort of resolution to fix the so-called Indian problem because the government didn't know how to coexist with the Native Americans and they had no value for their lives. And so, so Nancy's family comes over on this trail of what they now call the trail of tears during the removal. And the fact that she knows to my listeners, the fact that she actually knows that ancestry is, you know, kind of rare. Okay. Please continue. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, and definitely I owe that to our cousin, Lahoma, uh, Lahoma Lynn is what we call her, but she, um, she's definitely the one who's kind of put all of that together. So very thankful for that, that we do have yeah. that information. Like you said, it, it is pretty rare. Um, and even, still like there, I wish I knew more, you know, even having, I I still knew more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another question I think that um, I'm asked sometimes too, is just that like, I know what Tecumseh means. And so as I've looked it up and researched that, it meant shining or a shooting star. And so the Tecumseh that you talked about, you know, am I related to that famous Tecumseh? He was a Shawnee. Um, And I know within the Creek nation, Muscogee nation, there are some Tecumsehs who are citizens as well. And so 
I'm not related to them either. I actually have um, a good friend that we met professionally, but um, she's a Tecumseh. And so we kind of claim each other as sis- twin sisters is what we say, even though we don't <laughs> look anything alike. Right. Um, yeah, but she's Muskogee. And so there's just, um, you know, that other connection. When I was younger, I wanted to be related to Chief Tecumseh, the famous one. And so um, my story that I would always tell people is that, you know, he was going to all the different tribes and trying to unite them. And so maybe that's why we have Tecumseh's in various tribes, because, you know, there was all these different babies being born on his travels. And so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that would make sense, actually. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that was just my made up story as I was like a preteen teenager. Right. We just kind of <laughs> say that to be funny. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's pretty logical. I know. I know. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just kind of more about my family. So my, my grandpa Houston and his father, Amos, um, died when he was like 10 years old. And so when Houston was 10 and his mother, Ellen, remarried a, name, a man named Abel James. And they had a son named Wilburn James. Um, and his sons were Houston and Harris to come see a lot of names, a lot of names in there. And a, another Houston yeah. to see that. Yeah. According to the 1985 Scullyville census, um, however, it was listed with Charles Tecumseh. Um, that's Amos's brother and her son, Wilburn, were on that census together. Oh. And another later census also shows that Wilburn is listed as a ward of Charles. Um, so it's traditional that Choctaws, uh, for the wife to marry the husband's brother, if her husband should pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was interesting as I've kind of looked at those different names, I thought that must've been what happened here. Um, even though we don't really know that just because of the way it's listed on the census, I thought that was, would be interesting and, and maybe a connection that way. Yeah. I also found because there's this Charles to that's back in our history. Um, I have a son named Charles and he's, he's actually named after someone else, but it was really kind of cool to see there was somebody else in my family that is connected to his name. My daughter is actually named after two of my favorite aunts. So like I said, Mm -hmm. we have a big recycling of names within our family. I mean, if you found a good thing, why not? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I guess for me, it was kind of like, um, just like honoring that person to name after them too, you know? So, yeah, but I know that's why like for my aunts, when I was, I was in a teenager and I decided that's going to be her name. She's going to be Laura Elizabeth. And when I finally had a daughter, that's what her name became. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, and luckily Um, it is a beautiful name. So. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so let's see, uh, my dad's middle name is Barnett and it's actually spelled with an E. So B-A-R-N-E-T-T-E, which is kind of unique. I also found out that my grandpa Houston worked for a man who had that same spelling of his last name, Barnett. Um, so I don't know if that's also kind of where that came from, but I do know that my aunt Elizabeth was able to name him. And so maybe that was the connection there that she knew of that name and brought that right. in. She's passed now. So that's not something I can even ask her, unfortunately, but um, I just, like I said, as I've seen more records and learned more information, I think, oh, maybe that's another connection for us. Yeah. And I mean, it's obviously that Barnett is not a common name, as you said. So there has to be some kind of tie in there. It makes you wonder, like, was Barnett kind of a mentor to to him? Did he really Mm -hmm. look up to this guy or what the deal was? But that's interesting story. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I talked about my two aunts that my um, daughter is named after. Um, Laura is her first name. And so my aunt Lahoma 
who, if you heard me mention Lahoma mm-hmm. Lynn is the person who researched, that's my cousin, Lahoma. I have an aunt Lahoma and a cousin Lahoma. So okay. Lahoma Lynn is the, oh, is the cousin. Lord. Yeah, I know, right? Uh-huh. And so Aunt Lahoma's house was like that place that we always were excited to go when I was little. Um, she's my dad's sister. Um, and she lived in Tulsa and we lived in Little Bokoshi. And so we got to go to the big city and see our aunt oh, Lahoma. Right. And that was always really fun. Yeah. And so her first name is Laura. And so that's where I got Laura's name from, my daughter. Um, and then my aunt Elizabeth, um, it was also one of my favorite aunts because she was like that auntie that was always hanging out with the kids and interacting with us. And she was tiny. She was such a little woman. And we were always <laughs> excited to like see her because we would measure ourselves on her to see if we'd passed her up yet in height. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> probably didn't take long if she was a little Choctaw woman. No. Yeah. 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 I think probably fifth grade, I was taller than her. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. I have some aunts like that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do have some different pictures that I'm going to share and um, that I wanted to mention, like my cousin Peggy, who is Lahoma's daughter. Um, she okay. actually is kind of our curator of photos for the families. I yeah, relate the to cousin Peggy. Oh yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> but she's got so many pictures that um, she's taken just over the years and just they're numerous. And I'm just really thankful that we have those pictures um, to look back and see different people and kind of what they look like. Cause I never met my grandfather because he was much older. My parents are, are, were older when they had me. And so he had already passed. Um, mm, and so just mm-hmm. seeing him and my grandmother are only in photos for myself. So it's nice that we have a lot of those things. Oh, thank goodness. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's the only thing sometimes that we have of their memories. Well, shout out to cousin Peggy. Hey, Peggy. I'm also a fellow paparazzi of my family. So, um, good stuff there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned you're going to send some photos. So listeners be sure to check out the native chalk talk, Facebook page to see these photos of Nancy's beautiful family. So speaking of names, even though you haven't found any connection to Tecumseh, the chief that we all know, I thought I'd give our listeners a quick overview of him just because they might be wondering who, who are you talking about the Shawnee chief? So to my listeners, think about how many native Americans in the 1800s were living in what is now North America and how strong in battle and stealthy at hunting the American Indians were. So have you ever wondered when the white folks came in to colonize this land, what would it have been like, should the natives have joined together to defeat the colonizers? So the Shawnee chief Tecumseh attempted to do just that in what is now the Great Lakes region. He encouraged the tribes to put aside their differences and go to battle with the British against the United States in the War of 1812. However, his quest for native independence ended early when he was killed in the Battle of Thames in 1813. Now, there are conflicting reports about who killed Tecumseh and how. Some say he was carried off the battlefield and buried in a secret place. And some non-native folks said they found a deceased native who they believed to be Tecumseh. And I was disgusted when I was researching his life to find that this particular deceased person was skinned and pieces of that skin were tanned for souvenirs and razor strops. Wow. Awful. Um, So then there was one Richard M. Johnson, who was then running for vice president. And his slogan was based on a poem, which was rumpsy, dumpsy, rumpsy, dumpsy. Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh. Now, side note, I grew up saying, you've been hearing me say it through this whole thing saying Tecumseh and then Nancy says to come see. So this rhyme made me realize the proper pronunciation, if it was correct back in the 1800s, must truly have been Tecumseh. And so every time I hear Nancy say it, I'm like, oh, it's supposed to be Tecumseh. 
but I mean, she knows her own name, right? So if she says to come see, that's her name. But I often wondered, like, did it morph? Did it, because most people I hear say to come said, they say it with the UH sound at the end. And it's a very hard habit for me to break. I don't know if I'll be able to break it by the end of this episode, but <laughs> so anyway, kind of, kind of interesting when I read that little saying thing, I was like, that's how they're saying it back then. All right. Anyway, if, if there's any listeners out there that also say to come or to come see, I'd love to hear from you. So I often wonder what would have happened if Tecumseh had succeeded in his quest to organize the tribes and to defeat the settlers. I mean, it makes you think. So that's a very high level take on Tecumseh. Now let's get back to this Tecumseh, you, Nancy. <laughs> I'm always excited to talk to my fellow Choctaws. So what would you like our listeners to know about our great tribe? Oh, I would just want them to know about the amazing work of the Choctaw Nation. There are so many services that are there to help our people um, in connecting to the culture, like online language classes, things that can support our personal goals, whether that be, you know, with education or maybe even dealing with a crisis that we have. Um, and even just the home buying uh, program, there's there's so much that can support our people. I love that we have the Achufa portal to apply for services. Um, so if you have internet access, it makes it so easy to do that. Um, and I've even seen Choctaw employees who go the extra mile to help citizens who don't have internet access to complete uh-huh. the online applications, like going to their homes and helping them to do that That's and that awesome. kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. Because we know there's a lot of elders out there who, you know, don't even use the internet still or have access to the internet. And so that's just a, a big help, I think. One thing that concerns me is the lack of traditional ceremonial ceremony or spirituality. The tribe has even made Christianity the official religion of the tribe. Um, and I know just working here with the Muscogee people, lots of people still participate in traditional Christian churches, um, but there's a really active stomp dance or ceremonial community as well. And, and that's really seen as, you know, th- that is the traditional religion within the Muscogee Nation. And I, you know, I've tried to seek that out myself as far as like learning more about Choctaw mm-hmm. Stomp Grounds, because I know they existed. I know that they were there, but kind of have always just been told it's either not something that's practiced or not something that's talked about. Also, even, you know, it may be, I may be limited in knowing about it because of being a female. And I know a lot of the practices, um, you know, the males were in charge of those and that kind of thing. So um, it just makes me sad that there's not more information or not a big community that, that I can see. Um, and that may be because I'm not on the reservation right now, but even people I've spoken with who live on the reservation um, don't see it as a, a big community right now. And that just, like I said, that makes me sad. I think that spirituality or traditional spirituality is as important as our language. It's part of what makes us Chata. And I would love to connect with anyone who's willing to share or is able to share more about our traditional spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And, and again, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to keep this conversational with our listeners too. So I will be tagging Nancy on the Native Chalk Talk Facebook page when I post this episode as well. So feel free to reach out if you have any thoughts as well along that Choctaws and the spirituality and the religious part that are not practiced today. So from mm-hmm. what I understand, non-ceremonial grounds are kept by the Choctaw Nation for things like stickball and stomp dances. On the other hand, some tribes like the Chickasaw keep a more ceremonial stickball and stomp dance ground. So it's an interesting thought. You know, there's two ways they're practicing that. And so what is a religious stomp dance? During the green corn ceremony in July, the Choctaw celebrated reconciliation and purification and more. 
So the dancers are set up man, woman, man, woman, and so on dancing in a counterclockwise circle. So tell us about the Choctaw and their journey on the trail of tears. I know that's a big subject, but since we are talking about our tribe, we can't talk about it without discussing the removal. Yeah, definitely. And this is really something that I, again, I've had to kind of educate myself on through reading or just learning from different workshops or presentations. And luckily I just, I read a book last year that had a lot of really good information in it, talking about the Choctaw coming over from Mississippi on the Trail of Tears. You know, I mentioned the 1830 Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, and that was actually the beginning of removal for the Choctaw people from our homelands. So like many of the treaties we've learned about, the federal government was intent on getting they wanted and by any means necessary. Um, and they just did, they did just that in many ways. Um, often there would be liquor that would be running freely to cloud the judgment during negotiations. Sometimes they would make deals with one group of people that were forced on to the entire tribe. And then even, even if there was an agreement, often they would fail to follow through with the treaty terms. And like mm-hmm. I said, I, when, as I was reading, I learned, um, I was really surprised to see that um, when the negotiations came um, with Dancing uh, Rabbit Creek, that there were seven elder women who were listening in the center of the negotiations and their opinion should have been a force in the negotiations in just traditional way. Um, However, it was one of those situations where um, a side deal was made. The federal government met with leaders without those seven women and they they signed a treaty um, that forced a smaller fraction of the people to abide by it. Um, And so actually the women, when they found out this happened, they left the negotiations and refusal of the terms. Oh, Um, I had never heard that part about the seven women. That's so fascinating. Myself either. I had read that in the uh, living in the land of death. That's it. It was actually an audio book. Yeah. That I was listening to earlier this year. There was a lot of really interesting information in that book. Things that like I said, I've never heard before. And then just a lot of other details to things that maybe I had some awareness about. We had close to 20,000 Choctaw people who were removed from the homelands and approximately 2,500 people lost their lives on the trail. Um, as I mentioned, the book that I was listening to, Living in the Land of Death, it was really good. I, I learned a lot of this information that I'm kind of talking about sharing today. It was a book that I just read last year. And so it was definitely fresh on my mind as I was thinking about things that I wanted to talk about today. And just even as I think about how negotiations of treaties and how we've been treated in that process throughout all time, um, it just reminds me of the current governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt. He's been a constant assault to our sovereignty since day one in office. Um, However, with the affirmation of the Muscogee Creek Reservation, and then the more recent April 1st, 2020 affirmation of Choctaw Nation Reservation boundaries, I feel hopeful for people. You know, even though we still are under this attack, we are stronger, we're more solidified in our fight and for each tribe to assert their sovereignty. We're really just like a a supportive group at this point. Agreed. It's interesting how it's kind of brought everybody together. Those five civilized tribes, so, Mm -hmm. so called, um, have definitely come together to go, how are we all going to handle this? And should we handle it kind of together as this kind of one voice type of scenario? It's been very interesting lately here in the country. Yeah, definitely. Well said. So when I think of the journey that so many natives from multiple tribes traveled and how few lived through that experience, I'm really 
in awe of that survivor spirit of our people and, and of many other tribes. So it's great to see how many young folks today have a passion for hearing these stories. I feel like it's happening more and more that they are interested and, you know, really starting to appreciate what their ancestors went through. So speaking of our youth, you have a passion, as I mentioned earlier for our young people. So tell us more about that good work that we were talking about earlier and how you came to do what you do. Yeah. Um, I think I had alluded to my husband's um, other mom. She really kind of told me about a position with the tribe within the child welfare program. And, and that's how that start happened. And, and in that very first job, that was my first real job, as I call it, my mm-hmm. professional job. Um, I found out really quickly that I loved working with teenagers. Um, and so that was just an area that I had a lot of passion for. And just, I think not so much that I had a horrible upbringing, but just being able to also identify that I had some really powerful and positive mentors in my life and how that was an impact on me. So even though there may have been some limitations within my family, as far as support goes, I had these other adults who were there to help me along the way. So like I said, that was just an area that I just connected with. People always say I'm crazy for loving teenagers, you know, just because it is a difficult age. <laughs> I and, love that age too, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, and having adolescents of my own in my home, I, I get it. I totally understand how difficult it can be. Right, but it's right. still just a, an area that I, I love. And so I like I said, I worked child welfare. I worked for another organization called the National Resource Center for Youth Services. And we primarily worked with youth who were aging out of the foster care system. And so that was kind of a dream job, definitely at the time. I was mm-hmm. able to work um, with the tribe and DHS as far as those youth who were in foster care. And so that also just made me really happy to be able to connect with the different tribes throughout that position. In 2012, I had an opportunity to come back to work at the tribe. And I worked with the youth employment program for a couple of years. And then, like I said, in 2014, they created the youth services program. And it's definitely been my favorite job by far. Um, all of the things that I've learned about working with young people have really kind of finally come together, um, like having youth at the table from the beginning of our program. So it was created by youth for youth and they, they keep us in check. So like, that's something mm-hmm. that we, we can didn't have young people that work within our program, whether that be in a full-time position or even as a summer youth. And then we have a youth council. And so we always kind of go to them with like, Hey, we're thinking about this. What do you all think? And then they'll say, no, you're crazy. You should do this. And, right. <laughs> you know, we can, we can definitely, you know, get things to way to where it's going to be something that other young people want to engage in. If I, if I had to describe our program in just a few words, it really comes down to our mission statement. Um, we work to empower Muskogee youth by connecting to culture, community, and resources. Um, and it's going to make me sound really old, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but young young people today are really faced with so many more challenges true, that, true. Um, than I was at their age, and I just totally recognize that there's so much more that they have to deal with. Um, a big part of what we do is trying to help youth understand their own personal power, so that they can overcome those challenges that they face whether it be mental health issues, homelessness, a lack of confidence. It's about connecting youth to opportunities that help them to create opportunities for themselves and their peers. You know, that's, I think that's important. We, we can connect young people to opportunities, but they can also do that themselves. They can create their own opportunities. They can create those opportunities for other young yes. people and just trying to empower them to do that. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to empower them to say, actually, you know what, if you want to start that, go ahead. And how can I support you or, or whatever the case is, you know, I want to back up just a little bit. You talked about those kids that are aging out of foster care and mm-hmm. it's only something that 
recently I've started to think about kind of from getting to know you more, as well as, um, there's a company I call on that she donates to a charity and gives of her time as well to help some kids that are in that situation. And I tell you what, there's, there are very few things that really make me cry. That is one mm-hmm. that gets to me because here they never got at some point in their lives, they weren't adopted or they, or they were given up at some point for adoption. And then they probably went from foster home to foster home, or maybe not, but at some point they aged out, meaning they turned mm-hmm. what 18 and they're no longer under the care of those foster parents. So right. what does that look like for them when they get to that state? I mean, what do you do? You're 18. They just like kick you out. What happens? Yeah, luckily in the state of Oklahoma, and I say this because I've worked for the program, but there is an amazing independent living um, program, or actually it's called um, Successful Adult Program now. They changed mm-hmm. the name on it. And so there's a lot of funding that's available from the federal government for supportive services for youth who have aged out of the system, um, whether that be through the state or the tribe. And so that, that's available. Um, it can assist with housing costs. If you have a new baby, there's some expenses that they can assist with things like that. And so just a lot of supportive funding, as well as they provide case management as needed to young people who might really be struggling. And, and they just have an 800 number that's always out there and ready for youth to call and connect with them. So that's an amazing thing for Oklahoma youth. And they do have a lot of programs like that nationwide. Um, But I definitely know that Oklahoma is one of the top ones in the nation. In Oklahoma as well, um, within the state, they have extended foster care. So if a young person turns 18, but they haven't graduated high school yet, Mm -hmm. they can actually stay until they complete high school and then transition to their next educational. So say they graduate in May, but they're not going off to college until August, they can stay in that foster home and be supported during that time. Um, yeah, Yeah, yeah. The caveat is always, is there a placement available for them? And so if they're in a home that they're kind of go stay in that it always works out great but if they're a young person that's in a group home where they have to leave at age 18 that's kind of where it gets tricky because then there isn't usually an option there's not usually a foster parent willing to take them from a group home and keep them for that transition time so there's different transition services that are available but they're super limited obviously Mm -hmm. Um, and then even even some of the tribes don't offer that voluntary foster care time after the age of 18. And so that, that's another challenge as well um, that, you know, they're out at 18 or hopefully they're with a relative where they can actually stay. They just may not have some of the same support in place that they would if they were in a volunteer situation. I can't stand it. It breaks my heart. I mean, I, I can't yeah. stand that they go through that. You know, they, everybody needs love. So definitely, definitely. yeah. Thanks for letting me take kind of a side note there. Cause I was just curious of as to how that works. And then, so you kind of took that a lot that you had learned there and mm-hmm. in the Muskogee Nation Youth Services, it sounds like you've really were able to put some of those expertise and that empathy and things like that into the cool stuff that you guys are doing today. So on the website, which is um, youth.com, so that's spelled M-V-S-K-O-K-E-Y-O-U-T-H.com. You're there to encourage wellness, promote civic duty. Again, this is on the website foster advocacy, create support and provide resources to the Muskogee Muskogee youth. So what I love too, is that on the website, you'll see youth artists who do beading, they make moccasins, they'll do graphic design, and anyone can go on there to purchase these items. So cool. I encourage our listeners Mm -hmm. to go do that, support those folks out there. It's really good stuff. You're going to like what they put out there. So um, who can take part in these services? Is it only for Muskogees or is it also for teens who belong to other tribes? How does that work? 
Yeah. So a lot of our services are geared toward Muskogee citizens because of just where the funding yeah. comes from. Yeah. However, we we have a lot of partnerships with other programs within the nation um, who have funding to serve all tribes. And so um, we actually have cultural arts classes that are coming up in March and April. Those will be open to all Native youth ages 12 to 24. Um, and so we have an event calendar on our website. I would definitely check that out. Follow us on our social media, which is um, at Muskogee Youth. Um, on all of the major channels, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and that'll keep you up to date on those opportunities for young people. Um, so that's just one way to do that. Um, like I said, most are limited to Misco youth, but not all. And so that's usually advertised as to who it's for. So just check out our different flyers and, and you'll know if you can actually take advantage of those or not. Okay, great. Good info. So for someone you know, like you, who has worked with youth as much as you have, what words of wisdom would you like to share? Um, I think probably the biggest thing I always try to say is just something I learned with working with youth who are in foster care. Um, there was a mantra for a while within that um, entity of nothing about us without us. Um, and that just really made like, don't make decisions for us, you know, without us being involved and we can make our own decisions and mm -hmm. we should be empowered to do that. Yeah. And so that's something that I just kind of carry into the work that I'm doing now. Um, which, like I said, we try to make sure that young people are included in the decisions. Um, we've had them at our table with not just a space at the table, but a voice at the table from day one. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that young people are really powerful and they, they know what they want and they have such energy to do those things. When yeah. we were creating um, the youth council with our young people, um, we were working on bylaws and, you know, th those kind of things. So we were kind of just saying what it should look like. Here's an example. And they would ask a question. They would say, well, can we do X, Y, and Z? And I would always respond to them like, can you? And they would give me these crazy looks like, why is she giving us a question back to our <laughs> question, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it finally kind of, you could almost see it spark in them. And they realized like this was for them and it was by them. And they got to make all the choices. Mm -hmm. They got to decide what the rules of the bylaws were and how they would work. And, and they continue to do that, you know? So it's just something that was just really amazing to see them take hold of that and take ownership of that group. My friend, MC1, he's a um, DJ that we've worked with um, a lot. He does a lot. He's more than just a DJ. He does a lot of things. Yeah. But he has this song called We Are Not the Future. And, and in 2014, 2015, when we were first getting this thing going, that was just a, a song that I'd heard. And it was like, that's exactly like what are you need to have as their own mantra, you know, cause we always hear people yeah. say the children are the future. And I am the biggest fan of Whitney Houston. I believe they are the future, we believe uh, it. but we believe it. yes, yes. <laughs> but even more so, I do believe that, you know, they're, they are right now. They're not the future. They, they have so much that they can do right now, not only just within their own lives, but in affecting other young people and affecting their communities, you know, we, we can see that in young people being involved um, with like civic engagement type opportunities, voting, volunteering, running for office. Those are just one way, but then also just getting out there and speaking their minds. I think in the last few years, we've seen that more so not only with Native youth, but with all youth in mm -hmm. using their voices to be powerful. And so I just, I think that's, like I said, just something really, really important that we keep in mind that, that young people are powerful right now that it's not going to be just for the future yeah we're preparing them for that but if if they're if they're so good right now just think about what they're going to look like when they're 27 you know um as yeah, far as like, right. their own advocacy and empowerment skills yeah I love that somebody's out there believing in our youth and saying you can do this 
and you don't have to wait for me to say yes, you know, just yes. do it. I yes, definitely. definitely. Well, it must feel sometimes for, you know, I know a lot of us moms and dads will be like, oh, let's rush our kids here, rush our kids there. It's like, we don't mm-hmm. even, have to ha- even have time to ask them, well, what do you think about this? Or what right. choices would you like to make? You know, if you had five choices, which one would you make? It's those little things that we just get so busy to ask them. And this gives these kids a chance to, well, you said 12 through to 24 years of age. Mm So I guess some of them aren't quite kids anymore, but it does give them a chance to start thinking on their own and great stuff, Nancy. That's super cool. So I'm sure these youth truly appreciate all that you do. Does Muskogee youth take donations? And if so, how do people help out? Yeah. So we definitely love to get donations. Unfortunately, we're not able to do tax deductions for anybody who might need that. I always try to make sure that they know that part okay. um, just because of the way that we're set up. Um, however, we do a lot of different things that would take donations for like physical items and or cash or check. If you're not able to do that, we have um, a couple different things that we do. Currently we're doing some street outreach activities where we provide hygiene kits and period packs to youth who are homeless or in crisis. Um, and then we also um, have what we call the Raven Care Package Project. So the Muskogee Nation has a college and we have those young people who are living in the dorms can sign up for a care package and we get sponsors to actually purchase the items for the a care package for them each semester. Um, and we have a lot of people who are from out of state who will um, you know, send cash or money and then we're able to go and shop for those students and get them some care packages. So there's just a couple things that we do on a regular basis. We're also going to be starting a food pantry for a couple of the local housing units. And so we'll be doing some donation days for that as well. So again, tangible donations, whether that be canned food or a blanket for somebody living in the dorm, as well as um, we can accept debit and credit cards to do financial donations if somebody wants to do that to support any of our services. Yay. I love that. Yeah. yeah you've got some extra green beans you picked up at Costco. Come on by yeah. <laughs> Get <into> the Na- <laughs> Muskogee nation youth services. That's fantastic. I like that too, because some people I think feel like, wow, if I give them a donation of $20, I'm going to feel terrible and <laughs> no donation is too small. I would assume, right. right? You, you can take yes. any amount. Okay. And yes, I think it's, you know, it's also just heartwarming that kids would know that people would give what they can. And, you know, obviously the more, the better, right. You know, get out your definitely. textbooks, but at the same time, some of us don't have a ton to give and, but maybe even just picking up those extra you know, green beans that you had on your shelf. Those are little things that you can do that really are not a big deal. doesn't feel like it hurts your budget too much. And, um, so I hope you guys will consider doing that. You know, anybody that's near uh, the center, just go ahead and stop on by. So, well, Nancy, it was a pleasure to hear about your passion with the youth and thank you for sharing about your family as well. Tecumseh may not have succeeded in defeating the settlers, but our youth can certainly make a difference when they work together to do great things. So blessings to you and to yours. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To 
cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.